What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast here on the Smartcat Moment channel, where we go back to the year 2003 and we're checking out all the episodes of Smackdown that Paul Heyman was the head writer for. Joining me, Callum Wiggins, as per usual, on these journeys back in time, Robert DeFelice. Happy Valentine's Day, Callum. Are you excited for today? Um, I'm about as excited as someone who's perennially single on these events can ever <laughs> particularly be. Are you looking forward to it? Uh, I, you'd be surprised. I'm right there with you. Jeez. I mean, yeah. I'm, I mean, I appreciate that you think that I would be surprised. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a compliment to me or not. It's definitely not. But uh, <laughs> we hope that everyone else listening to this, if you're listening to this on Valentine's Day, we hope you're having a happier time than us two single losers are. But uh, if you are having a good time on Valentine's Day, what's your Valentine's Day plans? Drop them in the comments below, as well as your thoughts and feelings about this particular episode of SmackDown and the journey so far that we've been on. Drop a like on there as well. It obviously helps with the algorithm to make sure that more people can get access to this this uh, series that we've been doing for what is now episode 34 of this long journey that's coming very soon to an end. Uh, if you're listening if you're listening to one of the uh, podcast feeds like Stitcher or uh, Spotify or something of that ilk, then if you can drop a rating or a review or anything that that allows you to do, that's also greatly appreciated. There's an entire playlist on the YouTube channel where you can check out every single episode of this series from episode zero all the way through to now. And yeah, so you can listen to it in perpetuity. And there is a link in the description to the WWE Network edition of this one, as long as this is still a period where you can actually access the WWE Network. So <laughs> post-March, that's not really going to mean too much anymore. As long as you know how to find access to these shows, you should be good. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here, for episode 34, the Valentine's Day special of SmackDown. But we have to start with some news, which is very, very disheartening, I'm afraid, as is often the way in our little trips back into the news of time. Because, because this week saw the part, the death of Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. Ah, yes. Okay. So I, we're getting to that point again in these journeys where you can really recall where you were how you felt, and this struck me so hard because he was just with WWE, and then following that, he had been in TNA. And uh, it's you never like to see these stories. I'm grateful that we're in a place now where a wrestler dying in their mid-30s, early 40s is no longer super common. So uh, this was one of the hard ones. But again, I'm just like grateful that that's not the norm anymore. Yeah, so Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, uh, of course, 10 years in. Uh, was it, it was the AWA, wasn't it, that he was a part of? It was the point. AWA. Yeah, obviously moved into WWF and WWE at different periods. Time WCW for an extended period as well. And like you say, ended his career pretty much in terms of like being in front of the camera in TNA. Uh, do you know what his final match in TNA was? Was it against Jeff Jarrett? No, it was against uh, David Flair. In a, I, I can't, I don't know exactly what was on the poll, but it was a poll match. 
<sighs> of course it was. Why was it a would... poor match that ended by pinfall? Uh, of course it did. Why wouldn't it? Um, huh. Yeah, so that's obviously a less than stellar way to end the career of somebody who, especially in his prime, was considered one of the greatest wrestlers to have ever worked at that point. Um, yeah, former Intercontinental Champion, uh, true like legend of the game. It's obviously a second-generation superstar who bore a third-generation superstar in Curtis Axel. Yeah, it's just... Um, I didn't know that uh, David Flair had a tenure in TNA. Uh, yeah, he, that was uh, like soon after his um, WWE release from uh, when he was um, doing stuff with like The Undertaker when he was still in the uh, OVW and the training facilities. He got released, uh, went to TNA, tried his hand at being a little bit of a wrestler again and then swiftly retired soon after that. So as it stands, at least according to his Wikipedia, his last match was on December 6, 2008, when he teamed with Reed Flair, who was making his debut, to beat the Nasty Boys in a match in Charlotte where Hulk Hogan was the guest referee. Oh, that's a, a nice it seems cool like a match that you wouldn't believe happened, but yeah, wow. Yeah, so obviously Kurt Hennigstead was in, uh, like, like you say, he was 44 at the time. He was in, Obviously, he'd been in a WWE only less than a year prior. When uh, they re-signed him after his appearance at the Royal Rumble in 2002, he went on to have a less than, uh, I, I'd say, magical return in that regard, is that most of his matches were confined to heat and metal and stuff like that. And he was released soon after the uh, plane ride from hell incident, I believe. It was something to do with him having a sparring match with Brock Lesnar on top in the in the plane. Yeah. Yeah, um, he got a promo about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was basically part, a huge part of his TNA run was the fact that he out-wrestled Brock Lesnar, supposedly, on a plane. But what was going to be happening was he was in uh, Tampa for a fair show, which would have been called uh, Jimmy Hart's All-Star Wrestling. Um, it was going to, so, which is also going to be taping a documentary about what happens to former wrestling superstars after mainstream has left them behind. So people that were on the show included Hennig, uh, the Nasty Boys, Greg Valentine, Buff Bagwell, Conan, and Jim Duggan. Um, he was scheduled to main event the show against the former British bodybuilding champion Ian Harrison, who had switched over into a wrestling career. Um, but Hart had to obviously announce to the, to the show beforehand of like 400 people in attendance that the death had taken place. They did a 10-bell salute before... I don't, I don't know whether they actually like commenced the show, but... That's uh, that's essentially given how it's that announced. it's wrestling. I imagine they did. Yeah, um, yeah. So the cause of death was um declared as acute cocaine intoxication, uh, and also a mix of steroids and painkillers as well. So that's kind of the mo of the old style of young wrestling death, unfortunately. Yeah. Ah, uh, fuck, man. Mm. Wow. Uh, a coke overdose. And painkillers. Uh, yep, it's, it's, it's that's, 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 that's how it ends for a lot of them, unfortunately. And how old was he? He was only 30? 44. Oh, 44, okay. So, well, even that, even nowadays, it's still relatively young, because I think that's like AJ Styles' age. But, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a 
hard thing to obviously he was survived by all his uh, children he was survived by both of his parents as well which is like obviously no parent ever wants to go for but yeah it's a it's a it's a sad thing to note to start off on this but it's it's an important piece of news because he's he was a legend in the wrestling business and yeah gone way too soon absolutely and yeah just terrible and this is a year that would see you know miss elizabeth pass Stu Hart passes just a hawk like mm. shortly after wrestling for wwe it's just this is one of those years that's just like damn these wrestlers really do go too quickly so speaking of uh terrible news obviously more in the creative and booking capacity rather than an actual tragedy like uh, Henning's passing we saw the WWA Retribution show airing on pay-per-view obviously WWA is that our old favorite world wrestling all-stars it's I don't know how this thing is still going (laughs) well it's because they're not working in America Uh, but they are being headlined by former what American champions as it were because the main event of the show pitted Lex Luger against Sting for the vacant World Wrestling All-Stars Championship. Vacant, of course, due to the fact that Scott Steiner was the previous champion and relinquished the title when he went to WWE. I Luger is how far away from having the incident that leaves him in a wheelchair? It can't be too far beyond this point because... Well, Luger at this point, at least he's mobile, but that's probably the best that you can say about him during this match with Sting. If you are willing to search it out, I, d- I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't like recommend it. I guess uh, Luger was... has a wild run because if you look at him in '97, where he's one of the hot top baby faces for WCW, and then. All of a sudden, in 98, he's in the Wolfpack, he's wearing jeans, right? And then, like, suddenly, he falls off the face of the earth almost after a pretty lame run in WCW. It's just, it's yeah. wild. Obviously, yeah, obviously, in the last few years of WCW, maybe not the last year in particular, but towards the end, he was actually going by the, the moniker, the total package. Rather than I never liked that. I thought yeah. that was dumb. So Lex Luger defeated Sting for the championship thanks to two guitar shots from an interfering Jeff Jarrett. That's probably how you'd expect most shows at this point. Oh, Jeff Jarrett anything outside of WWE to end in 2003. Yeah. Uh, Lex Luger would not hog that championship for very long because he would lose it to Sting on a couple of nights later on a different show on the tour. And Sting would be the final quote-unquote official World Wrestling All-Stars champion because the belt was, in a few months' time, uh, merged with Jeff Jarrett's NWA championship. I, I think that that's, that's the right thing to do. The other piece of news uh, features the debut of a, a superstar that would go on to be a pretty big deal for SmackDown in the year 2003, which is the debut of Tenacious Z in TNA. Uh, Tenacious C, of course, being Zach Gowen. Yes, and there's a great story. I I can't recall off the top of my head of John Laurinaitis saying the wrong. I've got, I've got this written up here. Okay, good. <laughs> I've got this. Yeah, so I can I can fill in the blanks, but uh, it's good that you know that story at the very least. So anyway, Tenacious C debuted. He got a victory over BG James, which is of course the former Road Dog on his debut. 
uh, again, wild. Yeah. Uh, so the story that uh, Rob is uh, referring to relates to basically the story that uh, WWE got wind about the fact that there was a one-legged wrestler that was doing some cool stuff. And so they wanted to bring him in because they thought that would be a feel-good story. And maybe to a certain extent a freak show attraction. And John Laurinaitis was the one who was, uh, I guess, tasked with hiring this guy. And he brought on another person, another one-legged person, called um, uh, Steve... uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out, find his name here. Um, Oh, it's... I had it, it listed down. I've got it to, um, but essentially, they found this guy who was like six foot three, two hundred and seventy-five pounds, which is obviously about twice the size of Zach Gowen, probably. And yeah, he he was missing a leg as well, and so they hired him as opposed to uh, Zach Gowen. And then Zach Gowen, I don't know how they managed to get in touch with him later on, but then they realised, oh god, we've hired the wrong one-legged guy. We need how to go you- get. The actual guy back instead. How do you make that mistake? Um, you, I mean, it's like, John Laurinaitis, so yeah. I mean, he, he didn't have the most. Um, he didn't end up having the most stellar track record when it comes to, you know, um, spotting talent at the end of his run. I mean, he a lot of people that he signed to WWE are now the ones that are loitering, have loitered in mid card purgatory for basically the vast majority of their WWE careers and are still. Like in their forties and still working in the mid card, pretty much in WWE right now, which is a shame. Mm, absolutely, but yeah. So I think even though we're not going to be because the journey's ending pretty soon, we're not actually going to get a chance to talk about Zach Gowen in great detail. But overall thoughts on his run on SmackDown in two thousand and three. Um, I can't believe that he wrestled Vince. McMahon on pay-per-view. I, I really think, like, this is a year that if I told you what some of the matches on the B-shows were, you'd be shocked. Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper have a match in May on pay-per-view. And it's just, like, these weird middle-of-the-card throwaway matches. And I think Zach Gowan could have been a great story for WWE. How they never did the story of him in the Royal Rumble where you have to have both feet touch the floor, I don't know. Like, it seems tailor-made for WWE. But, yeah. I I think they just they were in a position that they would get used to for the next decade where they could just drop the fucking ball on people. And it didn't matter. Because all you had to do was hey, we're WWE, we're the only game in town, you know? Yeah, yeah. So his story was obviously a little bit unfortunate. He comes in being a big deal. He's a fan of Mister America. Mister America is biggest fan, and brought in with one leg. He immediately is feuding with Vincent Man, so they're pushing him hard off the gate. Then, as soon as that feud with Vince and Mister America leaves, then it's pretty much he's dropped into the lower card. He has a feud with Matt Hardy. That's his only other pay per view match. Is a match with Matt Hardy. Gets injured very soon afterwards, can't compete for a while, and then gets quietly released. So, how do you quietly release somebody who wrestled Vince McMahon on pay per view? Yeah, it's it's just it's just crazy how like flavor of the months like him just just lose uh, lose. For that matter, uh, Lashley had that kind of a run too a couple of years later, mm. where he wrestled Vince in what was it June, 
And by August, he's just like gone. Yeah, Lashley's one is strange in the fact that he was wrestling. He he was pretty much he was released the year afterwards, but he pretty much left WWE TV at the end of the year that he fought Vincent Ma- he fought Umaga and got jo- Donald Trump's uh, was Donald Trump's steed in that uh, battle of the billionaires. And yeah, he was he won the uh, ECW title from Vincent Man, and he wrestled for the WWE Championship against John Cena. And then by the end of that year, he was gone, pretty much. Yeah. It's just how things happen in the crazy world of wrestling. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Monday Night Raw before we move on to SmackDown. I think it's, first of all, pertinent to mention the ratings because, again, in a rare instance, but for the second time in three weeks, Raw came out on top in the ratings battle. So SmackDown's SmackDown's rating was a 3.64 for their uh, pre-Valentine's Day edition of SmackDown, whereas the February 10th edition of Raw scored a 3.9. So it's obviously not a huge gap, but it's a a fairly noticeable one with Raw getting the victory here. It's it's interesting to me as our Paul Hammond journey ends, so does their lead over Raw in the ratings. You can hate on Paul Heyman all you want, and many people do, but like that guy always knew what he was doing. From a creative standpoint, I think, for the most part, yes. I don't think he knew what he was doing in terms of trying to actually run a business. That was, right. a, li- that was a little bit beyond his, um, beyond his acumen, I think, at that point in time, as, as ECW can pretty much attest to. I think it was always beyond his acumen. Yeah, absolutely. But let's see what Raw managed to do to attract this rating, which was, frankly, not very much. So the whole, the whole main crux of the entire show was built around Vincent Mann and Eric Bischoff. Because Vincent mm. Mann had made the proclamation a few weeks ago that Eric Bischoff would be fired if he couldn't turn things around, as it were. Uh, he asked Eric Bischoff on the show whether he was able to sign Stone Cold Steve Austin. Bischoff said that he hadn't managed to do it. Um, despite Bischoff attempting to bribe Vincent Mann by using two lesbians, <laughs> because HLA was still this is the, I, this is the last you know, remnant really of HLA. It's like, I, I can't believe that that sentence just came out of your mouth, mm. even though we've been covering it all year. Well, I mean, they weren't just lesbians; they were, according to Bischoff, bisexual lesbians. Well, yeah, because uh, Vince, Vince is never, never mind. No, uh, not, not going there. But Vince turned that down, and Vince fired Eric Bischoff. Um, funny enough, Eric Bischoff earlier in the night had fired Jim Ross from commentary, uh, and this all led to the closing angle of the entire show, which is Jim Ross coming out to talk to Vincent Mann basically afterwards and saying that he had managed to convince Stone Cold Steve Austin to come back at No Way Out because obviously Jim Ross and Steve are close. And Vincent Mann responded to that by rehiring Jim Ross to go back to commentary and then he rehired Eric Bischoff to be the general manager saying that he would do that on only one condition is that he would be fighting Stone Cold Steve Austin at No Way Out. There it is. So that's uh, one of your main events for No Way Out is Steve Austin versus Eric Bischoff. Yeah. Uh, Steve Austin's I, penultimate match in his career. Which is, which is fucking ridiculous. Like, I, I mentioned this on last week's episode, but 
it's just ridiculous that uh, Eric Bischoff and Steve Austin have uh, the final, well, second to final match that Steve Austin has. To me, Austin's career ends after he hugs Vince McMahon. Like, I, I can, like, willfully let go of the alliance and just say, you know what? It never happened. Other stuff that happened on this show. The Dudley boys defeated Chief Morley in a three-on-one handicap match, which was essentially Chief Morley had to win to save his job along with uh, Bischoff's one. So he lost and he was fired. But then because Bischoff was brought back, he was rehired the next week. So it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Jeff Hardy's heel turn was abruptly ended when he saved Stacey Keebler from being uh, bullied by Christian after Tess defeated Christian in a match and Christian like crotched Tess and uh, took it. And so Jeff Hardy made the save for Stacey Keebler. Uh, Jeff then proceeded to lose a match later in the night to Chris Jericho by submission. Yeah. Jeff's run in early 2003 and even like mid 2002 screams, we were not ready for uh, Jeff. We're not ready for guys the size of Jeff Hardy to be superstars. I think he's still being punished for his, well, his attitude and refusal to arrive on shows on time and probably for the fact that he was probably very heavily into the drug paraphernalia at this point. Right. It's great. So I think this is just more attempts of burying him because of that. Uh, other stuff that happened, Booker T ended D'Lo Brown's win streak with no fanfare whatsoever, so it didn't even happen on a pay-per-view or anything like that. D'Lo Brown just lost his winning streak on a random episode of Raw. Uh, uh, because Red Dog, baby. Mm. You know, we're about to switch that shit right over. Uh, Batista defeated Tommy Dreamer. Uh, Evolution would beat Tommy Dreamer up afterwards. Booker T came out to try and uh, even the odds, but was beaten down himself. And then Scott Steiner came out and then eventually cle- cleared the ring of Evolution. So that's how they built, continued to build up the World Heavyweight Championship match. Uh, yeah, came in that RBD. Works for me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's worse things they could have done, and they have done in this uh, in this uh, feud so far. Uh, Kane and RVD defeated Three Minute Warning because Three Minute Warning. I don't think in the last two two months or so I've seen in any of the things that I've been researched for it Three Minute Warning winning a match. Does that surprise you? I genuinely, in my mind, they don't do anything after that Super Tuesday. And uh, Jazz defeated Molly Holly. So that was their first win back after returning from injury. So they're positioning her at the very point to be pushed towards the women's title picture, heading into WrestleMania at the very least. Uh, I'm a fan of it because she's great. You know, like oh yeah, she's great and she's still great. She's one of the best superstars that does not get her due. So that was what Raw managed to do to get the ratings win. So now we talk about our main event, which is, of course, the February 13th, 2003 edition of SmackDown from the Centennial Garden Arena in Bakersfield, California. Right. So in California for this week, heading on to the uh, West Coast for a change. It's about damn time, too, because I really feel like they were in the Northeast for quite some time. So... To immediately, I think part of the reason why SmackDown lost this rating is because they announced straight off the back that there's going to be no Rock and no Hulk Hogan on this episode of SmackDown. 
Yeah, I can see people tuning out. Yeah, so they're going to have an exchange next week on SmackDown before No Way Out. Uh, spoiler alert, the SmackDown rating next week is better than Raw's. So that's probably, again, part of the reason for that. And they also announced that it will be Tori Wilson versus Dormarie in a Valentine's Day bra and panties match. You know, I, I made the joke, I don't remember if it was on air or that Al Wilson didn't die for this. But, like, how can you just have a Valentine's Day bra and panties match with the woman that kind of killed your dad? Well, that's the only way to really settle blood feuds like this. I guess so. You have to rip their clothes off. That's that's how things work. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk a lot about how things work on this show, aren't we? Well, let's talk about the opener, first of all. Actually, we also need to mention the fact that there is yet another crate uh, that has uh, been presented by the big show for The Undertaker, being suspended by a crane on the stage at the time being until it will be taken into the ring. And we will have plenty to say about that as the time comes to it. Uh, yeah. But first we have the opening match, Edge versus Charlie Host. Um, not much to say here. Like, it's great. It's also Edge's, like, isn't this his last match? Yeah, this is his final match of his um, run on SmackDown before his neck injury that takes him this out of action. This is his final probably. match, like, pre leader issue isn't it um yes because obviously um part of the circumstances that led to the edge and leader affair was the fact they were both on the shelf at the same time right so that was part of it um but yeah so this is the last time we're going to see edge in an in-ring capacity he does appear on next week's episode of smackdown so he wasn't out of commission at that point, at, at least uh, between now and the next episode of SmackDown. It's between the next episode of SmackDown and No Way Out when he's ruled out of c- commission entirely. I believe they do actually like the right off angle itself on No Way Out. So, so we'll be able to review that on the Patreon edition. Obviously, if you are at the ten dollar tier or above, following us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/SmartCatMoment, then you'll be checking out all of the pay-per-view reviews that we've been doing as this series has progressed and the next one coming up soon will be the no way out one on the i'm just figuring out the day in particular i believe that would be the 23rd of february so that'll be when it's hit your inboxes then but as for this match yeah it's um it's a perfectly good match you can still tell that charlie hoss isn't quite there he's obviously got all the raw potential in the world that you need but it's not quite, he's not quite there yet, but Edge is there to carry him through it, and Edge, and yeah, and overall, it's a solid opening match. Yeah, it's, uh, I like seeing these guys push to the moon, it makes me sad that, like, that nowadays, people aren't being pushed to the moon like that. No. But yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just a young guy that's being put over an established name. So you had Haas throwing as many suplexes as possible. You see Kurt Angle watching the match from a desk backstage. You see like Northern Light suplex. Um, he pulled, obviously he's still a heel. He pulls Edge down by his hair whenever Edge seems like he's going to break away. Edge fights back, hits an Inzaguri, which Haas takes a massive flip bump for. Right. He gets, he gets hit in the back of the head and does a full rotation off the back of it. Um, oh, yeah. You got to love shit like that, though. 
something in this match that I don't recall ever seeing before, which is Huss doing some unique heel hook pin on Edge, basically rolling through Edge trying to do a DDT and getting into a really odd pinning predicament for it. I had, I've never seen it before, and I don't know whether I would want to see it again because it looks quite clunky, but it was interesting. I think innovation like that is cool, though. I mean, like you said, it does look clunky, but at least they tried. Uh, Edge uh, knocks Heyman off the apron because Heyman was out there with Haas and he was causing a bit of a distraction. So Heyman takes another bump. He's been taking plenty of those recently with a spear off the apron. Uh, but this allows Haas to perform an O'Connor roll and get the pin on Edge. Uh, crowd doesn't actually re- react at first because I think they were actually just like surprised that it would end like that. But yeah, Haas gets a victory over Edge, leading into what would soon be the six-person, six-man tag at No Way Out. But we'll find out more about that in the next segment. But yeah, good match. Great match. Uh, Colin Taz informs us that Nathan Jones is coming exclusively to SmackDown. Lucky us, of course. Not so lucky in the fact that we would do. Yeah, Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not so lucky that we won't actually get the chance to see much of Nathan Jones by the time this journey ends. No, but, that, that is the lucky part. Yeah, but he will have a interview on the show next week. So we'll get to see that at the very least. Uh, Nathan Jones is a weird anomaly of a, a thing, and we've talked about a lot of the series, but I just can't believe that he is on the streak. Like, he's in the streak. He's mm. part of that in some way. So we cut to Kurt Angle sitting at Stephanie's desk. He's sniffing a rose because obviously the Valentine's mood is in the air. Uh, She comes in. He compliments her hair. Uh, Stephanie says that she needs to tell him something. But Angle says that he needs to show her something. And he gives her the rose. (laughs) No, it wasn't as bad as you might imagine. Again, he doesn't feel like Angle's a gentleman. Kurt's a gentleman. Except for when it comes to Booker T's wife in a couple of years. That's a different story. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie thanks him for the rose, but says they need to talk about a match. Angle uses the opportunity to say that they're they're a perfect match already, and he leans in to try and kiss her. Uh, but before he can reach her, I don't think Stephanie was too thrilled about the idea. But uh, but then Lesnar comes in, breaks through the like breaks through the door, says, "Am I interrupting something?" And Angle is obviously frustrated. Uh, Angle and Lesnar square up. Stephanie informs Angle that it will be Team Angle. Versus Edge, Chris Benoit, and Brock Lesnar at No Way Out. At least that is what he's intended. Yeah, I that would have been a good six, man. Uh, Lesnar says that he's looking forward to it and invites Angle to sit ringside to see him destroy John Cena later tonight firsthand. Uh, He leaves. Angle's frustrated about all this, and so he just, like a moody teenager, takes the rose from Stephanie Man's hand and, and just pouts. Hey, that's top notch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's great at that sort of thing. Um, We move on to what's supposed to be Rikishi versus Nunzio. So a repeat from last week, and they show a replay of their match from last week and Nunzio's threat towards Rikishi. Nunzio's now wearing an oversized leather jacket. Well, that's what you do when you're a mob boss. And he attempts to leap on Rikishi during Rikishi's entrance, but he's caught and slammed to the floor. And I don't think Rikishi was taking too much care about how well Nunzio landed. Ah, he deserves it. Uh, you, can't, you can't jump at a big man like that. No, and, that's true. Like, come on. 
but then Rikishi, when he goes to inflict some more damage, is attacked from behind and sent into the steel steps by two assailants who are identified by Cole as Chuck Palumbo and Johnny the Bull Stamboli. So. This, to me, was a great use of Johnny the Bull Stamboli. Because where else are you going to slot a man with the name Johnny the Bull Stamboli? Yeah. That, uh, I think that's it, fantastic. Oh, no, it's the perfect fit for him. And it goes to show that as soon as this gimmick, this uh, trio ended, he was basically shit can. But, uh, but yeah, so this is the formation of the full-blooded Italians, which would be a stable on SmackDown for the the majority of 2003. They tailed off towards the end of the year. But um, Nunzio's like the the small mob boss. I think they, they had like a thing for that because they did pretty much the same thing with uh, Spike Dudley and the Dudley boys a couple of uh, years later. Oh, right, right, because he, he became the boss. And he told Bubba and Devon what to do, which I always thought was weird. Yeah. So Nunzio, despite being the less physically intimidating of the three of them, is the one that's actually the brains and the of the behind their whole operation. Like they hold Rikishi in place, Nunzio screams in his face that this is his family. Rikishi headbutts Nunzio in defiance, gets more of a beat down. Nunzio then gives him the kiss of death on the mouth. And then they attack him more, leave Rikishi laying. So. I think this is great. Oh, I yeah. wish that they could have done more with this, but such is life. Yeah, you have to like just leave Nunzio floundering in the cruiserweight division and release Johnny Balsamboli and turn Chuck Palumbo into a shitty version of an already shitty version of the Undertaker. Yeah. So Cole and Taz again hype up Hogan and Rock being live next week with Taz doing some ridiculous Hulk Hogan poses. Because that's what the whole world wants to say. It's weird to me that Taz is such a goof, right? Because yeah. we see it on AEW now. We see he's it. He's so serious. <laughs> he's so serious when he's a character, but he is a goof when he is a commentator. Mm. Well, again, it's just one of those things of. I mean, he's, he is still a bit of a goof in on AEW as the commentator as well, and definitely was in TNA. But it's just, especially with the WWE side of things, it's just like, okay, we did this guy was a killer in that other promotion, but he's a funny small guy. Like it's funny yeah. that he thinks that he's really hardcore and physical and stuff like that because he's he's tiny. Yeah, I I really I think Taz found a second home in comedy even though it's so clear that WWE could have done more with him as a wrestler or just as a manager, as we are seeing now. So we move on to Rey Mysterio versus Matt Hardy. So interesting matchup here. Uh, something that we will be referring back to when we get to doing our review of WrestleMania 19. Which is amazing, because I think nowadays that's something WWE would never do, is run a match at Mania that you've already seen on TV. It's very rare that, like, Mania might be the start of 20 matches, but it's very rare that you've already seen it on TV on the road to Mania. So Matt informs us that he gets more Valentines than Jeff Hardy, um, and that he doesn't send anyone flowers, but he only gives them chocolates instead. 
It's good to know. Although it's obvious that Matt Hardy isn't eating too much chocolate at the moment because he is trying to slim down fast for an opportunity at the Cruiserweight Championship against Billy Kidman. They inform us that he has gone down from 230 to 222 pounds. So he's dropped eight pounds in a week. He still needs to find. Not healthy, but you know what? But no, that's the story. Uh, But it's closer to his actual weight, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I assume that at this point he's actually close to around about 200. But uh, yeah, that's the the story. And it plays into this match quite a lot because Matt Hardy's wearing a lot of like rubber appendages, should we say, and on, on like underneath his suit, which is his attempt to sweat off as much as possible. He talks about the fact that he's completely dehydrated. He hasn't been eating. He's only been like drinking certain amounts of fluid as well just because he's so desperate to get down to the cruiserweight weight limit. You know, I think this is clever. I think Matt Hardy has proven time and again that he gets comedy. And I I wish the cruiserweight title meant more. Because even back then, like this is probably the most high-profile cruiserweight title match in existence, the one we'll see at WrestleMania. But... Even then, it didn't mean much. So this match, Mysterio does a lot of uh, flying stuff early on. Hardy managed to take over when Mysterio misses a plancher to the outside. Uh, he d- hits a gourd buster, dropping Mysterio across the top rope. Uh, gut wrench suplex. Uh, Taz talks about how he uses Stacker 2 on commentary, which I don't think was really that good for the sponsorship deal. Because Taz is pretty big. <laughs> well, good. They Stacker 2 love themselves some pro wrestling. Uh, Matt Hardy applies a torture rack. Quite interesting. We talked about uh, Lex Luger earlier. But yeah, he, I think he, he can do that to Ray. Ray is one of the few people he can do that to. Uh, Mysterio counters that into a really nice bulldog. Uh, commentary talk about how Hardy is winded now at this point. Mysterio lands a seated senton. Uh, Taz talks about how someone's foot has fallen off in the ring because a piece of Matt Hardy's tape is now lying in the ring somewhere. So you just assume uh, that a foot's fallen off. That's funny. Uh, Hardy rings into the ring post. He takes a, a springboard moonsault. Uh, Hardy catches Mysterio off springboard into a side effect. That was a nice spot. Uh, Matt Hardy starts breathing really heavily as he tr- attempts to twist the fate, but he does it so slowly that Mysterio is able to get out of it easily. Um, they do a spot where Mysterio do- leap jogs hard, leapfrogs Hardy. But I don't know whether this was due to the fact that they were trying to play off the Hardy is so winded that he couldn't get out of the way in time or anything like that, but he collides with Mysterio in midair. And Mysterio... I'll, that. I'll let it slide. It was part of the story. Yeah. Uh, some transitions then leave Hardy completely out of breath and collapsing on the middle rope. So rather than being kicked onto it, he just falls into the middle rope. Sweat that weight off, baby. Mysterio hits the 619, hits the West Coast pop, and gets the win. So it was a really nice match, and it told the, a consistent story throughout about how Hardy started off hot, but got more and more tired as the match went on, and that eventually led to his downfall. The one thing I don't like about this is that Matt Hardy is supposed to be getting a championship match at No Way Out, yet he lost this match, and there's no ramifications for it. Eh, They'll play into it when Ray beats him at Mania, or Ray fights him at Mania. I I guess so, but it's just a case of, well, realistically, if this was like the way it should be going, Mysterio should at least be added to that match at No Way Out. Or he should be taking Hardy's place because I, I, it's just, I understand what the story they're telling and it's totally fine. 
But in my mind, I just don't like how, and it's it's not just back then; it's now and stuff like that. That losers should not be getting title matches. I agree. But again, the story was the story itself is funny enough because Hardy like he pants near the announce table. He says that uh, that loss doesn't count because he was dehydrated. He'll make the weight that he needs to buy no way out. <laughs> I like that the loss doesn't count because I was dehydrated. Uh, this it seems like a downgrade from Matt Hardy, even though he's being tossed around. It seems like a downgrade from what he was doing beforehand. However, still great, still like everything that you've grown to love from Matt Hardy. So we see Benoit doing some press ups backstage with a bloodshot left eye because he's still feeling the effects of being busted open in the match with Kurt Angle the previous week. Well, A-Train walks the corridors and there's like a below angle camera shot that emphasizes the size of his huge belly. Because um, why not? I wonder how they got that shot. Because I kind of just assume that it's just like a cameraman that's just crawling on his back, just pointing upwards at A-Train. I imagine that there's a crane somewhere. Yeah, I know, but I prefer to think of just a guy just laying down, <laughs> just having to just scramble. A guy backwards. on a little scooter, just like, all right, go, go. Yeah, he's just leaning backwards on a skateboard or something. And he's just yeah. going backwards. <laughs> Gr- yeah. Gorilla style shooting. Um, they show a video package of Brian Kendrick's streaking attempts last week and his other attempts to get a job in WWE. You know what's great about that is somebody just did that, like, at the Super Bowl. Did they? Yeah, won like a three hundred thousand dollar bet for it too. Got arrested, but won a three hundred thousand dollar bet. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Um, we see backstage. Sean O'Hare says that he was impressed with Kendrick, saying that's how you make an impact. Kendrick responds that he got into a lot of trouble, but they're both then approached by everyone's favorite Bill Demott. Everyone's uh, favorite indeed. Uh, the ultimate bully Demott slams Kendrick repeatedly against some lockers until O'Hare gets in his way. Gets nose to nose with Demont and says that the kids had enough, and so I, so I'm getting the perspective from that that O'Hare's a baby face. No, he just he he's the balance. He's almost like Alistair Black, you know. He says no man's ever truly good, no man's ever truly evil. Like I think that's the vibe he's putting off here. Yeah, but it does give the impression that they're going to build towards a O'Hare Demont match. I uh, you know it have sucked, but you know, I, yeah, I the whole think... the whole the whole gimmick ended up sucking because they decided to just put him with Roddy Piper instead. But which is amazing. Which like again, <laughs> like that 2003, they threw some shit at a wall, and it just so happens that John Cena and Batista are the only two things that stuck. Orton. Uh, well, well, he yeah, I guess that's true too. He was getting repushed in 2003 but it's it's legitimately those guys the reason they only talk about the ovw4 with lesnar and cena batista orton is because out of everything they threw at the wall those guys managed to stick so we have chris benoit versus a train so a train is like outpowering benoit early absorbing his chops dropping him with like a reverse elbow he hits uh, one clothesline in the corner, but another one attempts, uh, another attempt leads to Benoit. Trying to look in the crossface, he attempts it a few times. A-Train hits a couple of high-angle backbreakers onto uh, Benoit. Uh, he t- t- targets the back of Benoit for the heat. 
taunts Benoit, slaps him around a little bit. He then applies an interesting reverse full Nelson, which is cool move. Yeah, it's essentially like he's got Benoit held up in the full note, like like back to back essentially, but he's got a full Nelson hold on. And so that was an interesting move. He uh, drops him hard, drops hard to his knees as well to do another like backbreaker. Uh, Adrian hits a Vader splash off the middle rope. He only gets two. Uh, we see our second torture rack of the evening with A-Train doing it to Benoit now. Well, you know, Lex Luger did just win a title. Yeah. I mean, like, you gotta go with what the champions use. A-Train then misses a splash and he's hit with three German suplexes. Uh, Benoit goes up for the diving headbutt. A-Train avoids it. Connects with the bicycle kick for two, although he clearly missed by a mile because they chose a really bad camera shot for it. I hate when they do that. Mm. Especially just... on SmackDown when you're taped. Yeah. Do it again. Like... Uh, Benoit counters the derailleur into the crossface, and after a bit of a struggle, he forces A-Train to tap out. Again, it's like another solid match. Yeah, nothing too much to complain about here. Benoit's good. A-Train is perfectly capable and safe in the ring. Fun fact, I think it's at No Mercy this year that they have another match. And that is the beginning of Benoit now using the sharpshooter to finish matches as well. Oh, funny fact about this as well. We're also going to see this match again next week. But I mean, yeah, if it ain't broke. Um, I, I kind of got an epiphany in this match that, you know how a lot of these matches are a lot shorter than the matches we see nowadays. Yeah. I almost kind of like that. Yeah. Because I think it's much better. Because matches don't get interrupted by commercials. And but so that's part of the thing. reason why. You get to see the whole yeah. thing, you get to see the heat and everything like that, whereas nowadays, because there's some sort of mantra that every single match has to be 10 to 15 minutes at least, it just... It, it, it's, not, it's not as good. It's one of always the few Russo's that, have, that made sense, where he would say, I never had a match go through commercial because you're sending the message that it doesn't matter. And yeah. I, I was kind of like, yeah. Makes yeah, sense. yeah, he's again a broken clock is right two times a day. That so. is correct. So let's say that uh, let's move on to a man called Joe Francis knocking on the women's locker room door and is greeted by Tory Wilson. He says that he's from Girls Gone Wild and that they're doing a special spring break edition on pay per view and that he wants Tory to be the very special guest. I do mean, you, do you know anything about this Girls Gone Wild pay per view? Here's what I know about Girls Gone Wild. You couldn't watch Spike TV without seeing an advertisement for it. I know that the pay-per-view was like put on by WWE. And that during that pay-per-view, I believe it's Snoop Dogg told Kevin Dunn to shut the fuck up or something to that degree. I mean, again, if you couldn't love Snoop Dogg any more than already, yeah. like, he knows what's going on. So essentially what happens with the Tory Wilson thing is that Tory Wilson uh, appears... And she has a, well, she's supposed to have like a quote unquote contest with Nydia. And Stacey Keebler and Jonathan Coachman are also hosting part elements of this as well. Uh, at one point, Stacey Keebler licks beer between um, uh, it's not, not beer, I think it's salt actually, because she, um, Tori gives her a shot of tequila or something. And then Stacey licks the salt from between Tori's breasts. Yeah. Because that's what they were doing. Uh, like, how, how do you want me to react to that? What do you want I'm me just, to I'm say? I'm just explaining to you what happens. 
So I don't expect you to comment. I just expect you to listen and move on. And um, Tori teases like like stripping completely, not completely naked, but taking her bikini top off. And at the second that she was about to do it, Nidia attacks from behind and we see nothing because WWE always teases that you're going to see super things. Why now? Why? Like Nidia has been irrelevant since Janie lost Cruiserweight title. What happened? Well, we'll find out later in the show why she needs to be position to at least be doing something because it's not about her it's about tori but in order for tori to be doing things she needs other women to be doing things on the show as well but we'll talk about that so tori after being uh asked by this guy to join the uh girls can wipe over says that she can get pretty wild and he emphasizes that this will be as uncensored as it gets I and have that, a feeling that it wasn't, but, you know. Yeah, no, I basically said, like, oh, it's something it gets. I'm now expecting absolutely no form of nudity whatsoever because you're just... That's what WWE's conditioned me to do. If you said, oh, it's going to be super raunchy, you're going to have state, I, uh, Stephanie Mann do HLA or something like that. I, I'd imagine tits on a Girls Gone Wild pay-per-view. Yeah, but, but I don't I, imagine I, that Tori's going to show her tits. That's, that's oh, what no, I'm talking no, about no. with that side of things. It's like the WWE side of it is bad. And if also, if you watch it, his eyes during this backstage segment, he's looking at her tits like constantly. I mean, that's that's just on brand. Mm. So time to figure out what's in the box, part two. As we see a replay of a show throwing Taker off the stage four months ago. Uh, Paul Heyman is in the ring alongside the crate. And he does a little bit of spiel before Taker comes out. Uh, he mocks Taker's signature taunts as he comes down to the ring. Uh, last week, Taker sized up the crate, but the, but this time he opens it fairly nonchalant, nonchalantly, and it reveals, of all people, Canyon dressed as Boy George. We're going to talk a like lot about talk this. about this. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> so well, the first thing we have to mention about this is that the version that we see on the WWE Network version, Network version is not what happened on TV. Yeah, how about that? Because they they do some shitty as hell editing of this. Of basically, they managed to pull out some clips of Canyon in like WCW in the late two thousand, in the early two thousands, whatever, saying who better than Canyon and stuff like that. Whereas actually, what happens on this on the live show itself is that Canyon sings, "Do you do really you want to hurt me? me?" As obviously Culture Club and uh, Boy George would do, and I guess they don't want to be copyrighted claim for it. I could not find a single clip of him actually doing this online. So as far That's as I'm concerned, bizarre. it didn't happen. But yeah, I can't find any I couldn't find any record of him doing it. I did look for a little while to try and find it. Uh, if anyone can find it, then you're more than welcome to drop it in the comments below and make sure that everyone else can see it. But after we after that little performance, Canyon attacks Taker from behind. Taker makes his inevitable comeback, destroying him with fists. On the announce table in a timekeeper's area, his shirt looks like a big red bib. I have to always yep. mention that because this Undertaker sucks. Yep. Uh, Taker drags Canyon to the ramp side of the ring with Heyman is just like looking from the top of the stage. Uh, he delivers several hard chair shots to the back, followed by one of the loudest and most egregious shots to the head ever recorded on the TV. <sighs> this chair shot is uncomfortable to watch Mm -hmm. it is insanely over the top completely unnecessary amount of violence attached to it 
there was no need. I guess the idea was that Taker was going to be showing what is going to happen to the big show, but it was way, way, way over to the top. Obviously, we talk about no, no chair shots would be happening to the head, and we're happy that they don't do that nowadays, or at least very often. But even in the area where this thing was sort of allowed or at least like accepted, this was going way too far. No, the most interesting thing about it was is the fact that there was a but right before he did it, there was a PG sign in the top left hand corner of the screen. How like I I'm like I'm at a bit of a loss for words because I don't know how much I wanna like get into the idea of how it's the can- canyon. Yeah. So like Canyon Canyon's gay, right? Or he like it come out as gay at this point in the uh, not uh, publicly, but at least backstage, he'd come out. And apparently, he had stated like he wanted that he wanted to try to come back to TV and have that be a part of his character, but not in like a you know stereotypical way. He just wanted to be, hey, I'm Canyon, I'm still Canyon, but I'm gay, and. Their response was this, was singing, hey, we'll put you in a box and sing, do you really want to hurt me? Yeah, dress him up as the flamboyantly gay boy George. And, yeah, and then having getting beaten up by The Undertaker and him. For being, which, which is, in retrospect, made worse by The Undertaker's comments of when men were men. And... All of this, we're covering this at a weird time. All of this just seems so uncomfortable. I would like, as a kid, I was like, oh, hey, it's a canyon and he's singing Boy George. Weird. Knowing what we know now, it's just super uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you can't always go back and look back on these past things and totally enjoy yourself really there's you grow up and you learn new things and it's, it's one of those things that's like yeah it's, it's shitty yeah so let's 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 try and move on from it then because there's not much I, else we can really talk about question it. though oh. how is it that they all love pat patterson they all love him and they loved apparently because well, because like, Vince... he was vince's like guy so kind of had to wild. like it that's so wild. I, mean, I mean at the end of the day it's not that people disliked can canyon i'm sure the people that were dis that did list- dislike canyon just for being gay and they're awful people of course but it's just a case of i guess the papax pat patterson because he was a, a prominent backstage figure and a likable guy and he was vince's right hand man then obviously there was no way that people were going to get offended get like be super offended by him doing it or anything along those lines but if it's one of the boys in the locker room and it's like oh i don't want one of those guys in my locker room if we're getting changed in there he might be looking at me all weird uh you know you ever hear about how vince told scott hall the razor remote the the goldest razor remote thing and he leads off with let me tell you about my first homosexual experience and it makes it it genuinely makes me go i wonder how okay vince mcmahon is with things like homosexuality 
and things of that nature. For all I we know, Vince McMahon might be like a huge ally. I don't. No, so I, I know we can always have like bad raps of Vince McMahon for certain things. I don't think, at least in that regards, he's demonstrably bad or anything like that. I think he. It's one of those things that, again, this is just speculation, so don't obviously take it as gospel or anything like that. I think it's something that he's fascinated by rather than, like, egregiously hate it. Like, he does, I don't think he likes it or he hates it. He, I think he just would be fascinated by it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great word. Yeah, so I think, I think he's fascinated by it and he thinks that he can use it in some sort of entertainment value. That's basically what I think he... He regard his attitude towards homosexuality would probably be. Don't think he. I don't think he's anti-gay. I don't think he's like necessarily super pro-gay or anything like that. But I just feel like oh, he feels like if he can make money off of it, then it's fine by him. I, well said. But so yeah, we'll talk about. I think we've pretty much covered this topic as much detail as we kind of want to at this point. So let's talk about Matt Hardy desperately cycling backstage as more coaches him to lose the extra two pounds. Love it. Yep, very funny. Um, something else that's pretty funny. Uh, Funaki approaches John Cena backstage and says that he speaks Cena's language. Uh, he untucks his shirt, puts on a, ba- a baseball cap sideways, and then reads off a card, what, what up, dog? Because Funaki's love- great. <laughs> you know, like, we can hate on some of the stupid things where they're like, I can't understand it. But, like, some of this shit is just gold like what up dog uh i've seen the response Very by saying good. that all funaki knows about dogs is how to make them fried rice and there we go <laughs> and there we go i mean like come on yep again <laughs> just just something that's is literally what he said <laughs> The reason that this elicits such a hysterical response from me is because we all know that John Cena now is like Mr. Let's all hold hands and be inclusive. And it's just funny that this was his viewpoint. Like, wow. He does that. He cuts a promo on Brock, knocks Funaki's hat off and leaves. Um... We move on to Eddie Guerrero versus Shelton Benjamin. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, a match I would have... I mean, I, I don't know whether we do see it later on or anything like that in, like, late years, but it would have been really... I mean, this was good regardless, but it would have been great. It would have been good to see it when Shelton was IC champion and Eddie was the single. Yeah, just yeah, just had a few more reps under him. So Benjamin comes out with Haas, but says that he'll do this on his own, at least initially. They have some good chain wrestling to start. Benjamin gets advantage with like an arm drag and a snap power slam, very similar to the Randy Orton or Samoa Joe's power slam. Um, Eddie reverses like an arm hold into a site OC plex. Benjamin lifts Eddie out of a head scissors position into an electric chair. So that was a nice spot. Um, there's a massive back body drop by Benjamin, followed by a unique looking backbreaker where he just goes across the back of his knee, leaning backwards. Um, Guerrero at one point hits a twisting Northern Light suplex for a two count. How cool is that? Oh, it's it's super it's super good. It's just like these guys were just like we can do really cool innovative innovative suplexes. Let's just do them. Let's just do this in this match. I'm uh, all for it. Yeah, 
Uh, Benjamin, he sets Guerrero up to do an electric chair off the middle rope, but Eddie escapes that with a sunset flip powerbomb. Because of course he does. Yep, well, right. Uh, Huss comes out at this point, causes a distraction, so Eddie dives onto him rather than Benjamin. Benjamin then manages to avoid the frog splash and pins Eddie off his dragon whip kick. And I said and a couple you, of weeks ago... You I were asked for weeks, that. Yeah, I said a couple of weeks ago, I wish he pinned someone with that move. And lo and behold, he pinned someone with that move, so I'm totally happy. He can. He never has to pin a guy ever again with that move. That move is now set for life because it can always be a potential finish because he did beat someone with it. It's... I'm shocked that he didn't beat more people with it. It's also shocking that he beat a guy who legitimately is the next WWE champion, like the next fresh WWE champion, because it's going to be Angle Brock, Angle Brock, Eddie. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was a good match. Obviously, Team Angle had to have some interference to get the victory but they're the young guys so you do have to have that certain element of they wouldn't be able to beat eddie on a straight one-on-one match so right uh it's pretty significant there's a video message from hugh hefner oh boy over at playboy magazine he says that a wwe diva will soon feature on the cover of playboy magazine and he just leaves it at that he gives no um indication of who that diva might be do you think Stephanie was in talks? Well, they actually mentioned this on Taz, um, is adamant on commentary when we head into the next match that it's going to be Stephanie McMahon on the cover of Playboy. And um, I seriously don't think that that would have been an option. I mean, it's, it's interesting to speculate, but I really seriously doubt. I think that's it's one of those things that I think people would be happier to fantasize about rather than actually coming close to reality. Yeah, I, but I think if they asked for her, I think she would have done it real quick. Uh, I don't I, uh, uh, I don't know whether she would have done it. I think that there could have been backstage people trying to suggest maybe she would do it. I think she's one of those people like, because Trish refused to do it. Like, I'm sure basically every other women's dressed outside, the ones that did do it, refused at one point or another. That's pretty cool that Trish refused to do it. You know, like, hell yeah, Trish. I appreciate you. So we move on from that to Tori Wilson versus Dawn Marie for the Valentine's bra and panties match. The ring has like a Valentine's theme surrounding it. There's lots of red and pink pillows and balloons and cuddly toys and chocolates and all that other stuff. I think they went to an effort. Yeah, I, but again, like, they used to go through a lot of effort for these. You could say what you want about these matches, but, like, they used to make it a spectacle for the girls, and it's it's just so shitty. So they announce, they're still announcing Dawn Marie as Dawn Marie Wilson, which I, I guess she still is, because you, you, don't, you don't stop being someone's stepmother when the father dies. Well, I would have been upset. If they hadn't, because like, really, how fast are you going to uh, let this thing go? Uh, so Tori ambushes Dawn on the ramp, who immediately counters and beats her up. Uh, within seconds of getting in the ring, Dawn immediately removes Tori's shirt and chunks her with it. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, yeah. There's loud uh, take it off chants in the ri- uh, by the crowd. 
Uh, Tori leaps over Dawn in the corner, does an O'Connor roll, but uh, she manages to get away before Tori can remove her tights. She just exposes the panties a little bit. Uh, Tori hits a baseball slide to Dawn after being hung out on the top rope. As Cole asks how a Valentine's Day Brian Panties match differs from a regular Brian Panties match. I five stars to him. Um, I, Cole... I really do appreciate that. Uh, Cole mentions that at one point Dawn was Tori's stepmom, so he doesn't seem to. He seems to believe that as soon as the father dies, that's just an old. Okay, well, and, but, uh, uh, they weren't married for too long. And Tori removes Dawn's top. Uh, Taz asks what Al Wilson must be thinking of this, and Cole reminds him that Al Wilson is dead. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Like, you, come on. It's a tape show. Fucking do it over. We know what's even funnier about that is that they, they did the commentary in post as well. So. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, they decided to keep it in because it's just hilarious that Taz just completely forgot that Al Wilson died in storyline. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. Uh, this is the point where we get some, where we break into, this is just a match where we just want to see women get down to their bra and panties. Why are you going on so long? Because they do a load of sunset flip transitions where nothing happens and they don't remove any bits of clothing. Uh, Dawn hits a springboard clothesline out of the corner, hits a body slam. She then starts climbing the, top, the turnbuckle backwards. Seemingly, she's going to hit the first ever top rope moonsault of her career here. And so Tori immediately pushes her over the top rope slightly so she can pull her pants down and then hang her out to dry, essentially. So, like, I I, I don't know, because it's weird. Like, they're trying, right? You see some sunset flips. They want to wrestle, kind of, but it's awful. So... Tori wins. Post-match, Nidia charges in, attacks Tori. Dawn joins the beatdown. Tori avoids a double clothesline, hits one of her own, takes Dawn out of the ring, hits a few body slams and clotheslines. She body slams Nidia, removes her shorts. So Nidia's been stripped as well, slightly. Uh, Does another O'Connor roll so she can then spank Nidia in the ring. Uh, Well. (laughs) Yeah. Tori then teases the crowd at the end by showing off her panties for a few seconds before leaving. It's at that point, if you're going to be like, well, I'm doing this for the crowd, then let it, then lose. If you want to do that, then lose the match. No, see, I've always, I've always argued this point. If the match is a bra and panties match, then the objective is to keep your clothes on. It doesn't mean that Tori doesn't want to always be in her panties and showing off to the crowd. It means that for, for that particular match, she can't take those clothes off. <laughs> I, I, it's just silly. It's just... Uh, I know, but this whole, uh, the whole thing at this point is silly. So. I, I'm really glad, that, and obviously the world has changed, but like... I wouldn't know how to review these things on a week-by-week basis, so I'm glad they don't do them anymore. So we have the tail of the tape for the Brock Lesnar and John Cena main event. We've seen as accomplishments on this tail of the tape being listed as having a PhD in Fugonomics. Hell yeah. And a fi- being a five-time West Newberry freestyle champion. That's that's not even real. Like, come on. I'm just saying, can we, can we mention something quickly? He's a former OVW heavyweight champion. Yeah, but OVW doesn't exist. 
I just like just list his OVW accomplishments. He's an OVW world champion. He's an OVW tag team champion. So like, just put those down. At least show he's got some wrestling credibility. Yeah, but the funniest thing to me is John grew up like super clean too. Like you know the kid from Boston who went to a private school, the West Newberry five time freestyle champion at that point just say he's got no accomplishment that he's looking to make one right now but beat the shit out of brock lesnar did you also notice what uh john cena's finishing move was listed as no it was listed as the kill switch huh yeah so i guess that's where christian got his one when he moved over to tna so at this point he's not doing the f the fu no so, so that's just what they're calling the protoplex. The, uh, yeah, the protoplex, yeah. I, I think that's better than protoplex because you can't call it that if you're not the prototype. But uh, the kill switch, I don't even think I've ever remotely heard it referred to as that. No. So I, I, don't, I literally don't think that he had a name for his finisher and they just put something there. Well, like, yeah, because he, was, he wasn't winning with it either. No. But then again, we're not covering velocity on this journey. No, that's that is true. So he might have been getting a few wins. I mean, he, I think during this uh, journey, he's had his match with Daniel Bryan now. Yeah, which is another one of those like really cool things to look back at. So Lesnar comes out for his entrance. He gets a steel chair out during his entrance, sets it down near ringside so Angle can come down and watch it from ringside. But Angle, spoiler alert, Angle does not come down during this match. Huh. Uh yeah, so Cena cuts a his traditional rapping promo, with the main semblance being that Brock Lesnar is dumb. Yeah, V five for fun. I forgot my name. It was... Yeah, it's just like it's quite interesting looking back because it's been well established that for the past like nearly ten years or so, Brock Lesnar is one of the smartest people in the history of the wrestling business because oh, yeah. he managed to get some most one of the biggest contracts ever to doing the least amount of dates. Super smart man. But he's a uh, country bumpkin, and they never want you to forget that. Yeah. So I t- took out a few choice uh, lines, as I would, uh, as I tend to do. Uh, tonight, I silenced them all. You're a Neanderthal, so I'll use words that are small. Uh, Not his best. Uh, Big Brock Lesnar, here comes the pain. God built me strong. Forget to give me brain. <laughs> okay uh this is the best one though uh you hop around all day like there's potatoes in your crack that's a nice tattoo of your mother on your back all right that's see i like the god built me strong forget to give me brain and i think the mother on the back is the icing on the cake started off very weak but john cena john cena knew what he was doing it still hasn't been, like, the best line that he's done so far is the next big thing, let me take your pants off. That's the best <laughs> one. <though. laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Uh, Lesnar immediately assaults Cena, throws him around with belly to bellies, drops Cena hold across his knee with a backbreaker. Uh, Cena crawls out of the ring after another throw. He's then military pressed onto the announce table. Uh, Cena is allowed to do something a little bit where he gets a thumb to the eye of Lesnar, but Lesnar immediately cuts him off. Uh, like nails his shoulders to like his back and launches him across the ring with another throw. Um, Lesnar exposes a turnbuckle pad. 
because he's obviously pissed about the mother comment probably. And yeah, uh, and uh, the ref tries to stop him when he goes to reassemble it or see what he can do with the turnbuckle pad. And during that time, Cena punches Lesnar in the head with a steel chain. That's a vintage Cena. Yeah, absolutely. So he beat um, him like that, didn't he? He beat him like that, like ten years later. <laughs> that how he beat him at Extreme Rules. Um, he beat him with the F five onto the steel steps. A few on the steel steps, should I say, or attitude adjustment at that point. Ah, uh, because I I remember he did hit him in the head with it though. He yeah. ended up using that chain because it was like weird because he had stopped wearing a chain for a long time at that point. So uh, Cena gets a near fall on that one. Uh, Lesnar starts selling really well. He gets really wobbly because obviously he's just been hit with a steel, steel chain. Uh, gets hit with a back suplex. Uh, Cena then great binds Lesnar with a choke hold. Lesnar manages to lift him up, drives him into the corner, but Cena still manages to keep hold. Puts Lesnar back down onto the mat. Lesnar gets up again, runs him into two turnbuckles this time, and Cena eventually breaks the hold. So they're giving Cena something here at the very least. Yeah, uh, I'm glad because he. He obviously we know what's going to happen to him, but he worked pretty hard. And I always felt like, yeah, his early run was shit, but they threw him in the deep end and he didn't deserve that. So Lesnar whips Cena into the exposed turnbuckle, followed by some a couple of belly to belly throws. He then drives Cena headfirst into the exposed turnbuckle. No DQ for some reason. And then he gets hit the F5, gets the victory. Like to decent main event i wouldn't say any more than that seeing the match gets like a few licks on lesnar but lesnar is clearly the dominant force in this one yeah as he should be uh lesnar grabs the mic and tells angle to get out here uh when he gets no response he decides to try and uh, essentially bay angle out by f5ing cena into the ring post the same way that he did it to angle a couple of weeks uh, like a month or so ago that is genuinely one of the coolest things ever and i don't know how he hasn't done that in every match where he's facing like finn balor or daniel bryan or aj styles brock lesnar should absolutely be tossing people into the ring post so an angry angle tells Heyman that he's been punked out and he shouts at the camera that he's coming down against Heyman's advice uh angle stands on stage lesnar's says that he's calling his bluff. He challenges to a fight right now. Angle says that's fine with him, gets in the ring. They go nose to nose. But then Angle says he's not fighting tonight because he's got a sinus infection. <laughs> Kurt Angle's such a dork. That's awesome. Uh, Brock calls him a chicken shit because Brock is one of the only guys that's allowed to swear on TV. Well, yeah, it works for Austin. And we're still very much in that Austin era. So... If you're going to get over, you got to swear. Uh, Angle then says that they can go one-on-one next week. Uh, Lesnar agrees to this, even though the crowd is obviously disappointed. But uh, he drops him with a clothesline, does a belly-to-belly throw. He whips him into the steps on the outside. He then teases that he's going to F5 Angle again into the ring post. But he's saved by Team Angle. Uh, Lesnar destroys both the tag team champions single-handedly, including an F5 on the floor to Benjamin. Uh, then he stands over a, a fallen, cowering Kurt Angle with the championship belt, taunts him, drops the title over him, and walks to the back. Boy, I'm really glad that he's going to have backup at the pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah, very much. Like, he just destroyed all three members of, Kurt, of uh, Team Angle on his own. So, 
look like Ben Warren. Edge you really need Edge and Benoit. That's going to be very helpful. Yeah, if if anything, Edge and Benoit are only there to potentially help Lesnar lose the match. Lose. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, overall, I think it was a pretty good show. The matches themselves were pretty solid throughout, except for that Brian Panties debacle and the all the shit involving Undertaker and Canyon. That is something that's be- best left consigned to memory or hopefully removed from memory at some point. Uh, Lesnar keeps being built strong, Team Angle picking up wins. Uh, they built up the fact that Hogan and Rock are going to be on the next week's show. So, yeah, it's uh, pretty good overall. I mean, it's this show is WrestleMania compared to what we see today. Mm. Oh, but like it's you know, I try not to compare it to today too much because like everything we've watched so far has been so much more digestible. But as we're talking about 2002 and 2003, this is a run of the mill show, and yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, there were obvious parts I didn't enjoy, but we talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, what do we have to look forward to next week? So, next week is the penultimate edition of the, I guess the the actual journey itself for the February 20th edition. So we have the the challenge has been laid down for Kurt Angle versus Brock Lesnar to happen on this show. Obviously, we'll see whether that actually takes place. Uh, um, I was good, good. I was going to say, I wonder if it does, but obviously we know. Come on, yeah. That could be main event of WrestleMania away. No, what else do we have on there? Of course, we have the much uh, touted confrontation between Hulk Hogan and The Rock. So Rock will be live and in person. That's for the first time since SummerSlam, is it not? Yeah, it would have been, yeah. So that's good to see. We have a Padawan pole match between Tori Wilson and Nidia. Because of course we do. Uh, we have a few other things. Uh, Matt Hardy and Shannon Moore against Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio just before their matches at no way, match at No Way Out. I like it because all four men know each other very well, and this will be a good one. Yep, so that's that's pretty much the, the main talking points that we'll be covering on next week's edition. And before we get there, though, let's drop a few plugs out of the way. So we mentioned Patreon earlier. That's where we're doing our pay-per-view reviews at this point. So following next week's edition of the regular Paul Hammond's Back Then podcast, a few days later, dropping on Patreon will be our review of No Way Out 2003. So make sure you're tuning in for that one if you're at the $10 tier or above. Of course, any amount of money that you can give is greatly, greatly appreciated. So if you are able to spare it just a dollar or any amount of money whatsoever, if you can drop a fa- one dollar, if you can drop a thousand dollars, whatever you can exactly I mean, do. Worth saying that if you do drop that thousand dollars, you're at this point a producer of the show. And we have to listen to legitimately. You can tell Tony whatever the fuck to do. Like, yeah. So so that's he'd there. appreciate that, though. He does have a wedding coming up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He he would be totally fine being your bitch up until the point that the wedding takes place. So. He he's having a much more eventful Valentine's weekend than Calvin or I. At least you'd hope so. Um, other than that, we have the uh, terms of like one-off payments and stuff like that. There's of course the merchandise shops at Redbubble and T Public. So if you pick, want to pick up some small cap moment merchandise, head over to there. Other ways you can support us outside of the monetary side of things is of course. Heading to the website, smartcatmoment.com, checking out all the articles, leaving comments, sharing them around with your inner circle of people. It's very, very helpful to just get our great writers some exposure, show off some of the excellent work they're doing on the website on a weekly basis. 
And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at SmartCountMoment. Join the Megamaniacs, facebook.com slash group slash the Megamaniacs, where you get to join a group of like-minded wrestling fans, get to talk, shoot the shit about what's ever happening in the wrestling world at that point in time. Uh, for Tony, of course, there is Fanboys Anonymous, the Geek Culture website, where you can check out everything related to movies, comic books, video games, TV shows, everything under that umbrella. Of course, myself and Rob are helping him out with the Review to a Kill podcast, which is the James Bond retrospective series that we're doing right now. So make sure you're following every single episode we're putting out there as well. I'm pretty sure we are at least through Goldfinger at this point. Yeah, I think Goldfinger was the most recent one. So there's plenty of already there that you can sink your teeth into, and there'll be plenty more to come in the coming weeks and months. So be sure to like their YouTube channel and subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow their website, uh, fanboysanonymous.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, buy merchandise from Redbubble and TeePublic, sign up for the Patreon, all of that other great stuff. Rob, let us know what you're up to. Yeah, okay, so it's, uh, it is currently Saturday, February, dad, it's on Saturday, February 13th. Yeah, I completely forgot because I've been saying Valentine's Day, but I know that that's tomorrow. Um, So what you want to do is you want to head over to Fightful and go check out all the coverage of Impact Wrestling's No Surrender, which features an interpromotional match for the Tag Team Championship, which features Tommy Dreamer getting a world title shot on his 50th birthday, and so much more. Tomorrow, we'll have all the coverage of NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. And we have the full breakdown of Triple H's media call from Thursday on this show, on this website. So check that out. Of course, check out Tony doing the review for NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. Check out all Tony's articles regarding NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. Just click around. The support means the world to us. And you can follow me on Twitter at DudeFelice. Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter at Wigwise 14 And thank you very much for joining us. And we will see you next week for the penultimate edition. But for now, this has been another Smart Out moment. And we are being counted out. Ah!